When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham and I'm on location in Silicon Valley, California at SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. As well as talking aliens, we have exclusive interviews with the heads of the two companies hoping to fly tourists into space in the near future, Virgin Galactic and X-Core. And we talked to the pilot of a U-2 spy plane about flying at the edge of space. You really do start to feel a bit uh, removed or detached from the earthlings that are still <laughs> on the surface of the planet. My guests are SETI senior astronomer Seth Shostak and science journalist Molly Bentley, who's executive producer of the rather excellent radio show Big Picture Science, which you can download as a podcast after you've listened to this. Seth, uh, as chief astronomer, as senior astronomer, uh, you'll be the one pounding out that Close Encounters theme, will you, when the aliens come? You know, the it, well, if I think of it, Richard, yes, there is a bottle of champagne always available at the observatory, and maybe someone will think of that as well. Do you really have a plan? I mean, is there a, you know, if, if aliens come, if aliens call, break glass, something like that? Yes. Well, actually, there is a kind of a document. It's called a protocol, which makes it sound uh, almost evil in a way. But all it says is check out the signal, make sure it's for real, and then let everybody know. And don't broadcast back without first talking to other people. But, in fact... All of that is predicated on the idea that uh, finding a signal would be like it's in the movies. You're sitting there, you're rather bored, and then a moment later you've made a great discovery. It doesn't actually happen that way. It would take days or a week for anything to happen. And in all that time, you can be sure the media will be calling up. So it'll be very messy. Well, this is another reason why it would be hard to keep under wraps, this news. This might be anticipating your next question. You know, could you have contact with an alien civilization and then keep it under wraps and never let anyone know. Well, as Seth said, um, there's a whole protocol involved in this. And part of it is coordinating with other astronomers around the world. And there's no way you keep this from the media. And there's no reason that the scientists would want to. But there is a plan. There, there is a plan. It's not terribly worked out. There have been some false alarms. And I can tell you that when you and a false alarm in this case means that you pick up a signal that at least for a while seems to have you convinced that this might be E.T. trying to get in touch. And uh, when you see what actually happens during the false alarms, it's all very chaotic. And, uh, you know, the phone is ringing again from the media, and people are sort of wondering, should we bother to call up somebody at another observatory somewhere and have them spend their time checking this out, or are we not quite that far yet? 
Well, we'll have more on the search for extraterrestrials later on. But I've just come back from the Mojave Air and Spaceport, a couple of hours' drive north of Los Angeles, for a BBC radio documentary that'll be going out in April. I also recorded, though, some interviews for loyal space boffins. And I thought you'd like to hear from the CEOs of Virgin Galactic and X-Core about how their plans for suborbital rocket planes are coming together. Now, just to remind you, Virgin Galactic are charging $250,000 to fly you alongside five other passengers in their Spaceship 2 rocket plane. X-Core's two-seater Lynx space plane, on the other hand, will set you back just $95,000. Well, we've, we've tossed a coin to see who we're going to hear from first, and it's Virgin Galactic, which is appropriate because they reckon they're going to fly first. My name is George Whitesides, and I'm the CEO of Virgin Galactic. How are we looking then with the timeline for Virgin Galactic, for the first flight into space and then the first commercial flight into space? I think we're looking good. You know, we uh, have more test flights to do this year, but obviously our, our hope is to do that first space test flight soon over the coming months. And then uh, we will do some more work, and uh, our goal would then be to take uh, Richard on the inaugural flight and to start commercial service soon after that. That's quite a risk, taking the person who created the company on the first flight. You've got to make sure it, it works, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, you know, we'll be doing a bunch of test flights before that flight. And, and also, to be clear, I think all of us feel like Richard will fly when the time is right. But at the same time, I think the time is almost right. And so we're, we're getting close to that moment. Has there been a, a sense of impatience, both from the, the, the paying customers, but also from the world watching this, that it's not quite happened yet? I think our customers have exactly the right attitude, which is take the time you need to make it as safe as possible. You know, while I think some of them would like to fly quickly, I would say that the majority of them want us to do it right. And that, I think, is the right attitude. I was a customer before I was uh, working for the company, and that was certainly the attitude that I always had was, look, if I'm going to put myself on this vehicle, I want you guys to test it to the level that you think you need to. There's maybe a little bit more impatience in in the general public. But even there, I think people are mostly just enthusiastic that this thing is actually happening, right? One of the great comments that I heard, which was actually from a congressman, he said, basically what I like about Galactic is that it's a sign that it's all going to work out in the future, that, you know, that, that this thing exists is a sign that we can do good things that are basically positive for the future of the world. And I really feel that way because I think that Galactic can bring a lot of good to humanity and the offshoots of it will be profound in its effect on, on our world. Talk about some of those then, because, I mean, okay, it's not, it's not quite flying cars, but, yeah, access to space for ordinary people, initially for ordinary people with $250,000. But you're talking eventually about access for, to space for people with a lot less than that. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's going to lead in several different ways. One of the most exciting ways is, is the concept of high-speed point-to-point travel, where our, our world will be knitted together in a more profound way than it, than it ever has been before. But I also think that having an access platform for space that is dramatically cheaper than it ever has been will open up all kinds of applications, whether they're scientific or technological, whether it's launching constellations of satellites that help with remote sensing or communications or whatever. I think that that space is a great resource for humanity, but what the challenge has been historically is that the cost of accessing that resource is so expensive that it makes only certain kinds of applications worthwhile or economically justifiable. And so if you bring down the cost 
of that access, then you open up a whole new range of applications. And that, I think, will be uh, really profound. In terms of point-to-point travel, does the technology you've developed and, and perhaps some of the rival companies developed make that possible? So you could have, I don't know, an hour-and-a-half-long flight from London to, to Sydney, something like, like that. It, it, does it make it feasible? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, we won't take this vehicle and put it into service for that application because, uh, well, a few different reasons, but for one thing, the, the fuel tanks are big enough. You need to get more speed to go that far. But I think some of the technologies that we'll be demonstrating, um, whether it's highly uh, reusable engines or it's certain types of thermal protection systems or guidance or just the concept of high-rate, high-operability spaceflight systems, are things that we'll have to demonstrate if we are ever to tackle um, those bigger goals. George Whiteside's head of Virgin Galactic. Well, in the hangar next door to Spaceship Two at Mojave, you'll find Xcore. I'm Jeff Grayson, CEO of Xcore Aerospace. Okay, so where are you at with the space plane right now? How close is it to getting into space? Wouldn't I like to know, but the, where we are is that the major structural subassemblies are either in-house or have, are still being made at one of the subcontractors, and once they are all on the factory floor, we start putting them together, and after a few months of that, it should start looking like a spaceship. So we're talking, what, years, maybe something like, something like that? I, I certainly anticipate that we'll be in the flight test program sometime this year. Give us a sense of, of what the the experience is going to be, of what people w- who have paid the $95,000 for a seat on your space plane, what they will get for their money. That includes medical screening and training that's done by the customer-facing organization, which right now is SXC. Then on flight day, you get suited up in your pressure suit. Uh, you start pre-breathing oxygen for the flight. Both of those measures are just in case there's a loss of pressure accident. Um, Under normal circumstances, you won't need either of them. It's a pressurized cockpit. Then about half an hour before the flight, you board the vehicle. We start doing the various pre-flight checks. Remember, on our ship, it's just you and the pilot, so you're very much involved in that whole pre-flight activity. About 10 minutes before the flight, we tow you out to the runway and conduct some final steps on the checklist. A couple minutes before the flight, when we've received clearance from the tower for takeoff, uh, we tow you onto the active runway, the towing crew backs away, and then we light the engines and go. Just to get this clear, you're the only one taking off from a runway and landing on a runway again. And no one, has anyone done that before into space? The highest altitude that anybody's ever got to that way is about 120-something thousand feet. We'll be doubling or tripling that. And the experience itself, once you take off, it's pretty quick. Things are going to happen pretty fast. Things happen very fast. It takes about 15 seconds to take off from brake release. It takes about 50 seconds from brake release to get supersonic. And three minutes after you were on the runway, you're at about 180,000 feet going upstairs at about Mach 3. The engines cut off, and then you're going up so fast that you keep coasting up for another minute and a half or so before you reach your peak altitude of about 350,000 feet. And then it takes another minute and a half or two to coast down to the point where you re-encounter the atmosphere, and then you start being pressed into your seat by G-forces. It peaks out at about four times Earth's gravity, which is comparable to a high-end roller coaster, but it goes on a lot longer, about 20 seconds at four Gs. And then you're in a supersonic glide home, transitioning to a subsonic glide home. It takes about 20 minutes to glide home, circle the airport, and land. And then we tow you back and take you out, and there's a couple minutes for you to, you know, 
regain your breath and uh, <laughs> uh, take pictures. And then we have to usher you along because there's somebody else waiting to do it right behind you. That's the other neat thing, isn't it, about your concept, is that you can go, again, straight oh, yes. away. You need to, what, refuel at same engine, No, nothing changes, you just take off again? No, nothing. We just, we just put in new propellants, uh, we charge the batteries, and uh, go again. And this is really, as far as you're concerned, the, the start of a, of a bigger picture here, that you start with a suborbital space plane, then you're what, looking to something that goes into orbit, something beyond that. Yeah, in fact, we started with the design of what the orbital system would look like before we started the design of the suborbital system. And when it became clear that we would need a lot of experience with a precursor vehicle before we could do an orbital system, and we started asking, how can we do a vehicle that proves out some of the core technologies and leads in an engineering sense towards the orbital system, but also serves useful markets? That's where the suborbital vehicle business plan came from. Personally, um, I'm starting to spend more and more of my time thinking about the orbital system because I'm kind of one of our advanced concepts people, and I'm very eager to move on to it, but I can't until after we have the links flying. Jeff Grayson, the head of XCOR. Well, my guests here at SETI are astronomer Seth Shostak and science journalist Molly Bentley. Molly, you've heard from XCOR and Virgin Galactic. If you had the money, would you do it? If I had $250,000? No, I don't think I would do it. Why not? It's a lot of money. And what struck me about both of their descriptions is that it seemed like a glorified uh, roller coaster ride. So you're going up, it would be a thrill, and then you would come back down. I didn't hear either one talk about a sustained presence in space, maybe a space hotel or something like that. At least I'd want a couple nights in a space hotel. Um, And the other, truly, is that I'm claustrophobic. And that description of putting on the space suit and the pressurized you know, to prepare yourself for the pressurized cabin, I don't think I could do it. I get nervous in uh, elevators. Yeah, I, I would think that if you're claustrophobic or don't like heights or don't like going fast or don't like roller coasters, you probably shouldn't shouldn't do it. Otherwise, Seth, otherwise it would be otherwise great. Otherwise it would be great. Yeah, it sounds yes. fun. Yeah, uh, I, but I'm with you because I think it's terrifying. Seth, what about you? Well, I, I would certainly be tempted to do it. But Molly certainly has a point there too because, you know, what you really want to do is to be in orbit. You want to go around the Earth. You want to see those scenes from space, something like in the movie Gravity actually, which was a lot less well, expensive. Well, ideally, ideally not like the movie Gravity. <laughs> well, there were a few problems there. Yeah. But, but, you know, they take you up to the threshold of space as defined by somebody being 100 kilometers up. And then that's as far as they go. They come back down. Now, that's high school physics. To go into orbit, you have to go seven times as fast, which means, what, 50 times as much energy. So that's, that's a much bigger deal. Uh, nonetheless, I have to say it's very, very tempting. However, I'm hoping to live long enough to see an even lower-cost ride into space, maybe the space elevator. That would be the ultimate in low-cost carriage to uh, the final frontier. Okay, just explain what a space elevator is, because they are cool, aren't they? They are cool, yes. They're not built, unfortunately. But the idea, it works on paper, and that's the first thing. Uh, it is essentially jack and the beanstalk, but without the jack part. It's just the beanstalk, and you, you build a, essentially a very high tensile-strength cable, uh, probably made out of carbon nanotubes. That's what they're talking about now. And you put it down somewhere near the equator, maybe on an island in the ocean, and it's just this this ribbon of carbon nanotubes going up 100,000 feet, you know, uh, 100 kilometers into space and more, actually. 
and you just ride up it in an elevator enjoying really terrible music for, I don't know, a day or so, and then you're there. But the cost of doing that would be 100 times less than using a rocket. So that's that's where you want to go eventually. Seth, Seth, is it a space elevator an elevator or is it a space escalator? I mean, you're in a, some sort of a cabin you're or something. In a, it's an elevator. Okay, so that scratch that, off, you prefer scratch that off the list for me then as oh, well. Oh, because it's claustrophobia. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's the thing. I would like to be in orbit. Uh, you look at those views from the International Space Station and, and just be able to float there and look down at the Earth. That would be fantastic. But I don't really want to get there and I don't really want to get back because every means of doing that at the moment is pretty terrifying. To be fair to the, uh, the companies we heard from, they have got plans. I mean, they're talking about going into orbit or doing something bigger. Uh, and Seth, do you think that is the beginning of something? Oh, here. You oh, think absolutely. there is? Yes. No, absolutely. Th- th- this is the first step. And in fact, you know, trying to project how you would look at all this 100, 200 years from now, you would look back and you would forget the details. But we say that's when, when space travel actually uh, changed in a fundamental way. The, the usual analogy is with aviation, right? In the beginning, aviation, it was experimenters. It was the government. It was mostly the government, certainly in this country, right? They were interested in military applications. So they built the first planes, and, you know, they, they contracted for those. But pretty soon it was taken over by commercial enterprise. And it's a good thing it was because otherwise it would cost you $250,000 to fly from New York to San Francisco. And these are small startup companies. We're recording this in Silicon Valley. Molly, do do you sense there is a, there is a parallel here? There's certainly what they talk about is a parallel with what was going on in Silicon Valley thirty forty years ago. I may have to defer to my colleague here about what was going on in Silicon Valley <laughs> thirty or forty years ago. Seth knows more about this, but the idea of an outlier or a cowboy. These guys are operating as space cowboys. They're doing it outside of what the government is doing. Maybe that has parallel, Seth? Is that healthy? Uh, well, that's very healthy. It's uh, it's not so healthy if you're in one of the established companies, of course. You don't like that. Bill Gates has often said that, you know, what's going to bring down his company, which after all is a you know a gigantic com- company, is a couple of guys that he doesn't know about in a garage somewhere coding up some software. That's the Silicon Valley way, what they call disruptive technologies, where you come up with something that, you know, think, think of Facebook or any of these things, Twitter. I mean, it's just a very simple idea involving only a very small number of people. This is what's so, I find, encouraging about all this, because it sounds like very small groups of people can still do something that history will see as revolutionary. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And we'll keep you posted with any updates from Mojave on those disruptive technologies, Facebook and Twitter. You can also find us at spaceboffins.com. And we'll let you know more about that BBC radio programme, Nearer Transmission. Let's move on to space aliens and the challenge of searching for intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy. Uh, This is a phenomenal challenge, isn't it, Seth? Well, it is. It, it, it's a challenge that has not yet been met, if you will. But it is a challenge that SETI has taken on, is continuing with. Yes, yes. Uh, and in, in fact, this is kind of a niche market endeavor. I've got to tell you, the total number of people in the world that to do this kind of thing, that spend their days trying to hunt down other intelligence in the cosmos is, you know, maybe the 10 people in the entire world. It's very small. But the point is that today, finally, we have you know, enough technology and we have enough science to make it credible to actually look for signals that would tell you that somebody's out there. 
What do you actually do then? I mean, on a daily basis, you're not sitting there looking at a screen, looking at a, a, a waveform on a, on a computer as they do in, what was the, various films. Yes, almost all of them, actually. Yeah. Yes, yes, they, they, they sit around looking bored, but usually that only lasts 20 seconds in the movies, and then they find something. <laughs> I wish it happened that way in real life, but it hasn't so, so far. So what do you actually it's do? What does it involve? Automated. It's all automated. The, 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 the telescopes are run, and when I say telescopes, I'm referring to a phalanx of antennas uh, the SETI Institute's antennas are up in the Cascade Mountains of California, about 300 miles, 500 kilometers north of San Francisco. Uh, they're there not because the cuisine is so great that they're there because the mountains shield them from all the interference, all the radio coming from the San Francisco area. Because you're looking for radio from uh, away from the Earth. Exactly. Very, very – it would presumably be a very, very weak signal because it's come a very long way, uh, way beyond our solar system, of course, out at the realm of the stars. So we're looking for a signal that reaches us that's clearly not made by something natural like a quasar or a pulsar, something that's made by somebody with a transmitter. So how do you know it's, it's uh, made with a transmitter and not something that's uh, some sort of cosmic phenomenon? Yeah. Well, that's actually a good question because, indeed, you pick up radio waves all the time if you use a big antenna and point it at the sky. Uh, but those radio waves are due to things like stars and, as I say, not so much stars, but the sun produces a lot of radio static. Jupiter does, quasars, pulsars I've already named. If the signal is at one spot on the radio dial, in the same way that the BBC is at one spot on the dial – well, that's the kind of signal that nature is not able to make. That's something that it requires a transmitter to make. And so if you find something like that and it's moving across the sky following the path of the stars in, you know, at the same rate, then you can say, you know, I don't know what that is, Bob, but whatever it is, there's a transmitter involved. And so you infer that that transmitter didn't spontaneously appear on somebody's planet, but that was cooked up by some engineer. And it has to be, then, intelligent life that's invented radio transmitters. And you're, So you're assuming that they will have radio or TV or something that is broadcasting away from yes. their planet. Yes, and people will ask, well, yeah, but maybe they never invent radio. Or maybe they, you know, they're, they're happy to contemplate their navels or play video games or something like that. Well, that could be. And maybe a lot of life is like that. Maybe even a lot of intelligent life is like that. But you won't find those guys. That's the point. The ones you find are the ones that have built a transmitter that happens to be sending signals in your direction. Now, Molly, you've come to SETI as a, as a science journalist. Has your opinion of this changed at all? I, th I think it has, and I'll tell you when it did, uh, when they started finding extrasolar planets, because then it seemed less speculative. I don't know if it did for Seth, who's been involved in this for a long time, because he's actually participated in the search. It seemed, it always seemed like a search we should be doing, that it was hubris in a way not to. But when they started to find, when astronomers started to find extrasolar planets, and when those numbers of extrasolar planets, well, they added a few digits to the end. I think it's in the millions now, Seth? Well, there are about a thousand actually that are confirmed. There are a couple of thousand more. They're probably planets. But. Okay, but the estimates by Kepler, the Kepler spacecraft, are that there may be millions of planets orbiting suns other than our own. Yeah. Well, actually, the the results these days from Kepler are that roughly one in five stars has a planet that would be roughly the same size as the Earth and at the same temperature. So it could have uh, an atmosphere, oceans. Now, one in five means that in our galaxy, you can expect tens of billions, maybe a hundred billion Earth-like worlds. And by the way, if our own galaxy is not adequate to your, uh, your needs, <laughs> there are a hundred billion other galaxies we can see, and they all presumably have a similar tally of Earth-like worlds. Okay, so Seth just upped the number. I was talking millions, he's talking billions. And, and Richard, that is really 
moving us in the right direction. If you have an Earth-like planet, perhaps you'll have evolution. Maybe it'll just be bacteria. I don't think that they can build transmitters, but maybe we can't rule that out. Maybe alien bacteria can build transmitters. But if you're looking for intelligent life, you at least if, and you're studying life on this planet and understanding life the way that we know it, you do need to find a planet that is Earth-like where perhaps that would evolve. And that's the point, isn't it, Seth, that you're looking at building blocks of, of this. So you're looking at places where there, there might be life, you're looking at planets that might be similar to the Earth, and you're also looking for radio transmissions. You're looking at all these other parts as well. Yeah, well, the question always has been, where should you aim the antennas? You're, you're trying to pick up a signal, so what's the best place? And in the old days, we didn't know about planets around other stars. We assumed they were there, a bit of uh, cautious optimism, if you will. But we would just point at nearby stars and say, let's point at stars that are like the sun, because after all, we know that the sun can host a planet with intelligent life around it. Uh, but it was all done, you know, if you will, out of ignorance. Then we started finding planets beginning in 1995 around other stars. So we started aiming the antennas there. But they weren't planets kind of like the Earth. Well, now we, we come back to sort of full circle. We know that if one in five stars has a, a planet on average, one in five has a, a planet somewhat like the Earth, you might as well just look at a thousand nearby stars, even if you don't know anything about whether they have planets or not because a couple of hundred of them will have an Earth-like world. So we can go back to just looking at the nearby stars. Are you confident that evolution works in the same way everywhere and that human-like beings or intelligent beings will inevitably evolve all over the place? I mean, is there any evidence that that would be the case? No, no. There, that's a very contentious uh, point, actually. Just because I give you a million planets or, or 100 million or 100 billion which you know might be the, the tally in the Milky Way, 100 billion planets with life just sitting there cooking away, doing their Darwinian thing. And they will do something akin to Darwinian evolution because that's just competition. Of course it will happen. But how many of them will ever cook up something that can build a radio transmitter? And the answer to that is we don't know the answer to that. Because, and, and if you talk to evolutionary biologists, they will say, look, you know, if the dinosaurs hadn't been wiped out, we might not be sitting here today. It's not at all guaranteed that you get intelligence. But if it happens occasionally, if it happens one time in 10, one time in 100, one time in a million, these numbers are so large that you still have a lot of cosmic company. And are you broadcasting out or are you just assuming that when we started broadcasting as a, as a species in, what, the 1920s, something like that, that someone else is going to pick us up? Well, we don't, in fact, generally broadcast deliberate signals into space. Hi, we're the Earthlings, join our book club, whatever. We don't do that. Uh, on the other hand, we're considering doing that. And it might be a good thing to do if for no other reason than to simply give you greater insight into the problems confronting the aliens. And that might help your listening experiments. But mind you, if the nearest aliens are 500 light years away, I mean, just to take a number, nobody knows what the number is. And, and you broadcast an inquiry, hi, you know. And it takes 500 years to get there and another 500 years for their response, assuming there is one, to come back here. That's a very long-lived project. Your funding will run out and your personal interests will decline. So we, we are not doing that. But you're right. Leakage from our planet, particularly things like FM radio, television and radar, have been you know, essentially <laughs> they've been shooting into space since the Second World War. And if anybody is nearby, they will have the capability of picking that up if they're reasonably well advanced. Does it worry you, though, Molly, that these might be the bad guys that we're broadcasting to? We're saying, here we are, we've got a lovely planet, come and get us. No. And, and the reason why is that I've taken my cues from Seth on this one. 
who has said over and over that there's no reason to believe that they would be. However, Seth will also tell you, I mean, all of that comes from the movies, right? That aliens come and they try to wipe us out. But Seth has also said, and this is what gives me pause, if an alien ship did land on the White House lawn, he would run for the hills. So if they do show up... And they, you know, they, they they set their ship down in Washington or in your front yard. Yeah, you would probably proceed with caution. Actually, very often it's the Golden Gate Bridge that gets it, isn't it? So you're pretty uh, not, close. Not often enough. Uh, but <laughs> no, they, they do tend to favor attacks on the United States. I've never seen them take on Belgium, for example. Uh, here's the thing. You don't know whether getting in touch with the aliens or letting them know that we're here by broadcasting signals. You don't know whether that's dangerous or not, actually. And you can sit around in the bars and argue that as long as you want, and you'll never be able to decide. But there is this. It's very easy to demonstrate that any society that would have the capability to come here and ruin your whole day by, for example, incinerating a planet, uh, that society can already pick up the leakage off our planet that we've been sending into space willy-nilly for the last 70 years. So it seems silly to me to worry about it. Excellent. Well, in the list of the world's coolest jobs, being the pilot of a U-2 spy plane would probably come quite near the top. In service since the 1950s, these planes fly at 70,000 feet, almost the edge of space, and certainly high enough to see the curvature of the Earth. Their pilots dress in what are effectively spacesuits and get a similar flight experience to the astronauts that will fly in the new space planes. Well, I've been speaking to the head of the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, Colonel Lars Hoffman, about his experiences flying the U-2. Its nickname is the Dragon Lady, and uh, the way we describe it is it's uh, like a lady when you're up flying up high. It's a very smooth ride most times, but when you bring it back down to try and land it, it's the most difficult aircraft in the U.S. Air Force inventory to land. It's more of a dragon when you get back down low altitude. And it flies, I mean, up at sort of 70,000 feet. What are you seeing? Are you seeing, is it almost space? Are you seeing the curvature of the Earth? What's that like? Yeah, 70,000 feet is uh, twice as high as most airliners. So you uh, certainly can see a lot farther. And in fact, you can make out just a slight curvature of the Earth. Pictures that are taken at altitude show that a little bit better. It's a magnificent view. Flying over central California, I can see all the way up into uh, Oregon and Washington, several hundred miles away several hundred miles in all directions. It's just a spectacular view. 70,000 feet sounds an awful long way up, but how vulnerable are you at that sort of height? There's a line known as Armstrong's line. It's about 53,000 feet. When you're above that line, if you were to lose pressure and you did not have protection, your blood would literally boil uh, due to low pressure. So we wear a full pressure suit like the astronauts wear when we're flying above 50,000 feet is, is a standard practice. That suit provides that extra layer of protection if we were to lose pressure in the cockpit. The cockpits have been pressurized uh, over the years to an altitude of about 29,000 feet. So that's like standing on Mount Everest all day. So I'm wearing the full pressure suit. I'm breathing 100% oxygen. My body is feeling like I'm standing on Mount Everest all day. So it's quite fatiguing. The good news is that they've modified the U-2 fleet in the last two years to lower that cabin pressure down to about 16,000 feet, which virtually eliminates the risk of decompression sickness that we've dealt with over the years. The U-2 was developed, what, in the 1950s, and, and it's still flying. I mean, has it changed substantially? Has the mission changed substantially? The mission hasn't changed substantially. The aircraft has, uh, has changed substantially. In 1955 is when it first flew. Kelly Johnson designed it. He's the same designer of the SR-71 Blackbird. 
but the model of U-2 that we fly today has changed uh, considerably. It's about one-third larger. The ones that we fly today were built in the 1980s. They were significantly upgraded in the 1990s with new engines, new electronics, new avionics, and the sensors have continued to evolve over the years. So the sensors we fly today are the absolute state of the art. And we also have capabilities to network both via satellite to other aircraft and to the ground. So it truly is a 21st century weapon system. And you say a weapon system, it's still essentially a, a, a reconnaissance aircraft. What sort of missions is it, is it flying? What sort of things is it used for? The whole spectrum. It does both tactical all the way up to strategic reconnaissance. For example, flying along a sensitive border looking into a country of interest, we can take uh, images and we can record uh, signals intelligence that tell us what's going on within that country, like North Korea, for example. Uh, we also can fly over a battlefield, and we can uh, real-time see what's going on on the battlefield to very high resolution, and we can communicate to units on the ground or to command centers to tell them exactly what the tactical situation is. So the U-2 is very flexible across the whole spectrum. It does sound a long way up, but, I mean, is it, is it protected? Is it, is it safe to fly at that height? Are you beyond ground-to-air missiles? Are you beyond other aircraft? In most places, we are beyond those uh, surface-to-air missiles, but there are locations we fly where we are vulnerable to those surface-to-air missiles. So we have uh, layers of defense to prevent uh, being attacked or targeted by those surface-to-air missiles. And and this is a very difficult question to answer, but but what is it like to be at that sort of height in this unique environment? I mean, you are flying higher than anyone else on Earth when you're in that that plane. It is... um, Fantastic. It is an amazing feeling. The last long flight that I took was from Beale Air Force Base in Sacramento, California. Nonstop, 12 hours, and I landed uh, in the UK. was uh, delivering an aircraft en route. And the flight en route was across Canada, Greenland, Iceland, and then dropping into the uh, UK. And it was the most amazing experience, those 12 hours. You feel a bit detached from humanity on Earth, much, I, I suppose, like astronauts feel on the space station. And it takes about an hour to come back down from altitude to land. And you, you come back to land, and you have to get up for the landing because it's such a uh, physical experience to do. But when you touch down, it takes a little while to kind of reconnect with life on Earth, if you will. So, I mean, you're almost an astronaut, aren't you? Certainly, I would look at the, the picture of you in the, uh, the pressure suit, right. the, the, the gear you have to wear to fly this aircraft. Do you feel like an astronaut? Yeah, I do, actually. That... Putting on the, uh, the full pressure suit, it's a, very similar to the suit that the astronauts wore when they flew in the uh, space shuttle. And uh, that's the closest thing I can think of to being an astronaut, and especially being up there by yourself. You really do start to feel a bit uh, removed or detached from the earthlings that are still <laughs> on the surface of the planet. When you look down, you see an airliner passing below you, and it's half of your altitude. You start to realize how high you are and how alone you are up there. So it's a feeling, I bet, that the astronauts experience when they're on the space station. U2 pilot Lars Hoffman. Okay, not strictly space, but what an extraordinary job. And he was such a nice man. And one of those people you meet and you just feel so inadequate. I mean, he's the head of the U.S. Air Force test pilot school. These are the real, the top pilots in the world. You're not going to. Are you feeling inadequate now with us? in front of us no I'm, I'm good um you wouldn't want that would you molly 
No, I, I wouldn't. You're, you understand that I do have a problem with speed and claustrophobia. However, I think it does take a certain kind of person to become an astronaut or to fly a, a spy plane. I mean, it really, it, you really are an adventuresome sort. And the astronauts that, that we've talked to, um, there's a certain amount of fear that they don't have that maybe the average person does have, that they're able to put that aside and do what they do without that panic that might arise in the rest of us. There is something special, Seth, isn't there, about, the, about these people, those sorts of people? Yes, yes. Uh, one always admires how cool they are, right? Uh, you know, everything can be going wrong and they're still cool. And, of course, that's a, a survival instinct they must have. That's indeed quite, quite analogous between the uh, astronauts and the cosmonauts and the pilots. I mean, they're all the same. What do we think about it being called the Dragon Lady? I was thinking that was a little disparaging. Um, it flies like a lady and then when it lands, I don't, I don't know. We'll have to investigate that. Maybe they could rename it the Dragon Kitten or something. Thanks to my guests, Molly Bentley and Seth Shostak here at SETI. Their radio show is Big Picture Science. It's also a podcast. And I'll put some pictures of our recording here up on Facebook. Well, the Space Boffins podcast is produced in partnership with the Naked Scientists and is supported by ABSL Space Products and the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. We'll be back next month. I'm Richard Hollingham from SETI in California. Thanks for listening.